How's everyone this morning? <laughs> Come on, you guys heard me the first time. <laughs> All right, yeah. All right, let's, uh, let's open up our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And um, when we started the book of 1 Thessalonians, one of the things that we talked about and we mentioned was that this is the, uh, the book that most people go to when we discuss the rapture. When the rapture is discussed, these are the things that we uh, look at. This, these are, this is the one book that many people look at. Now, there's really no actual teaching on the rapture. As a matter of fact, there is no word rapture in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. We're going to go over a few verses and uh, look at some other, uh, some other ideas and some other things that the Bible teaches as far as being caught up in the sky with Jesus Christ. That's true. The word rapture is not in the, the New Testament. There is a Latin word that we uh, translate to rapture. It's rapcio or rapido or rapido is the way we would say it in Spanish, quickly. And so this, this rapture, this caught upness that we're going to look at in uh, verse 16 here in just a bit, when he descends with the archangel and, and the dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive in 17 will be caught up together with him. When we look at this, this word rapture or rapido is exactly that quickness, the rapidness of how it happens. It is a violent taking up of whom, just gone, in a manner and at a time that most people are not going to be able to explain what happened. Remember, as we talked about this last week and we, we went over this, we know that the rapture is going to happen, number one, because what Jesus Christ, you know, uh, well, let me read this, and then I'll comment on that uh, from verse 13 on to 18. And, and in my Bible, right above verse 13, uh, the sentence there, it says, the coming of the Lord. And in verse 13, it starts off like this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, the people in Thessalonians, in Thessalonica, they were under the impression that the rapture might have already happened. There was a teaching going around that Jesus Christ had already come and therefore took, uh, took, took the people with him. And they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that people were dying. You know, during that time, people have died. This is what about those that are dying? What about those that, are, that we know were faithful saints and uh, that love the Lord? We know that there are a lot of people that are dying, but not everybody died in Christ. And we know our loved ones died in Christ. There was evidence. There was a transformation of their life. They were different than the world. They live within those boundaries and parameters that we've been talking about. And, and so they, they gave their life and they committed their life. And so Paul says, you know, I, I don't want you to be unignored. Uh, excuse me, ignorant, in other words, or uninformed about those who fall asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. There is a hopelessness in the world for those that know about their loved ones. And it's unfortunate for many people, a lot of times when somebody passes away, automatically, regardless of the lifestyle they led, regardless of their commitment to Christ or not, regardless of what it is that they had done, they're in heaven. It's just a matter of dying. Is it all that gets you there? You die, you get to heaven. It's like your ticket. But the Bible clearly doesn't teach that. And when there is that sense of hopelessness, and then there's a hopelessness, there's a mourning that's, that goes beyond what the Christian mourns. And as we talked about this last week, those that are dead in Christ, they're not dead. As a matter of fact, uh, Paul doesn't even call them dead. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Koimetorion is the word that they use here, and, and koimetorion is, is the, the word that, where we get our word cemetery from. 
and the comatorion was uh, a sleeping place, a resting place. You're traveling, you're, you're this uh, sojourner that's going through the land, and you find a place to finally rest and sleep and be ready for the next leg of the trip. And it was a beautiful picture of showing those that have died in Christ because that's exactly what happens. Paul is encouraging his believers, do not be mournful like those that have no hope. You come to the end of your life and you, you come to that point and you recognize, I'm just tired. I just want to go to sleep. And therefore, Christians should not fear death. And I, I granted, I, I'm somewhat afraid. I don't want to die. Of course not. You know, but I'm like with Paul, you know, it's, it's good to be in the presence of God. But apart from God means I have to stay here with you guys. And, uh, you know, it's more beneficial that I stay here with you. Paul wasn't done. He knew that he had a lot of more teaching to do with, like, for instance, the people in Thessalonica. You know, I don't want you to be uninformed. We talked to you about this. We shared this with you. I want to encourage you. The last verse, verse 18 says, encourage one another with these words, because death is certain to come. It is going to happen. But, but I don't want you to be like those that have no hope. Those that have gone on, they, they've gone to sleep. And it's interesting, the wording that Paul uses, because he goes on to say in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died. You know, it's interesting, he doesn't use the word, he fell asleep. It was final, it was done, he put it to death. What Jesus Christ did on the cross is he died. He died a sinner's death. Because he took my sin, your sin. God just unleashed his wrath on this sinful man that had no, that was no sin. He knew no sin, but God placed our sin on him so that he could punish it. And so his wrath was unleashed on Jesus Christ on the cross. And we talked about that last week as well. On how it just, it, it satisfied. It satisfied, it propitiated there was something that, need to, that needed to be done, and Jesus Christ says, I'll do it. I don't want Sal to have to go through that. I don't want James to have to go through that. I don't want anyone else in this world to go through that. I will do it for those that I came to save. Because these are yours, God. These are the ones you gave me. These are the ones that hear my voice. These are the ones that are from my sheep pen. And I have other sheep that hear my voice. And those that don't hear my voice, the goats, they're just going to continue on causing havoc. But I only came for the sheep that you gave me. Beloved, there's only two classes of people in this world. There's goats and there's sheep. And at the end, there's this sifting. And a goat cannot become a sheep. A goat is a goat. You can't convert a goat. And a sheep is a sheep. All you can do with the goat in church is entertain them. Make them feel good. Understand, oh, you know, everything's okay. I'm a work in progress. Uh, you know, God loves, you know, he hates the sin but loves the sinner. And if you're a believer, you, you know deep down in your heart that you are a sinner and you're thankful for what God has done for you. And therefore, you want to express that gratitude in service in coming to know Jesus Christ even more so and desiring him even more so, desiring to, to fellowship with the brethren, because this is what we do. And so Jesus says, I don't want you to be like the goats. I came to die for those that are mine. So that way they don't have to go through this. Lord, you gave them to me as a wedding gift. This is my bride that I'm, I'm giving myself for. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, which is a beautiful picture of the church and of marriage. And so what Jesus is explaining here and what Paul is trying to get across here, we, we've gone through this. We've taught you this. This is basic Christianity 101. Now live like this. Encourage one another with this. Do not be uninformed. Death is just a matter of 
going to sleep because Jesus died. But you, beloved, you will sleep. You, you know, I, I had a very long day yesterday. I must have drove over 200 miles, 250 miles, uh, to Ventura and back and all over the place. And by the time I got back, I was ready for a nap. <laughs> I was ready to get tired. And I'm thinking about today's message, and I'm thinking, that's what it's like. You're on this journey of life, and it's beautiful you up and traffic and all kinds of things, the heat and, and people, all the things that happen in your life. And I'm not even going to pretend to think that I know what's going on in your life, but if it's anything like mine or like anybody else, it's hectic. I know. There's pressures in life. And you just want to get home and take a shower and get some rest. That is what Paul is saying here. They've gone to this coimbatorian. They've gone to this hotel. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a the five-star hotel. There's, they've got the star for dining. This is where they're at. And it's interesting because we'll read a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 15 that their bodies, their bodies are in the grave, but their spirit, their soul is automatically with Jesus Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's like right now. The thief on the cross. Today, right now, Today you will be with me in paradise. Let's just get this body thing out of the way so we can get there. You're going there. I'm going there. The, us three are going there together. You know, we're, we're all going. Well, this body is just being left behind. Either you're going to be in the presence of God or you're going to be in the presence of torment. There is no soul sleep. Again, last week. And, and when we look at life in this manner, what Paul is trying to say, see, because Jesus Christ, he died. And because he died, we know that he's coming back again. Look at this. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so that's two reasons to understanding this. Number one, he took my sin. Number two, he got up. And he lives. And he stands at the right, he sits at the right hand of the Father, stood at the right hand of the Father when Stephen was being stoned as, as an approval. But he's sitting at the right hand of the Father with the power and authority. He said to the disciples in Matthew 28, All authority has been given to me. All authority. Therefore, go and make disciples. That's what I want you to do. Make disciples. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. So I want you guys to understand this, Paul says. He's going to bring those. They're going to come back. They, they're going to, they've fallen asleep, but Jesus Christ is going to come back for them. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now, this is, this is very interesting because the first Corinthians, as they say, is one of the first letters that Paul wrote. We know that Paul didn't travel with Jesus. Paul wasn't discipled by any of the apostles. Paul had a, a revelation. He, he had an appointment with God and Jesus Christ, and he met Christ on the road, and his name was Saul on his way to torment and kill the rest of the Christians, put him in prison, drag them away, take away their possessions, because he did not want anybody going after this other religion. It was the Jewish religion, and that was it. Jesus Christ met him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Paul, Saul says, who are you? I, I am Jesus. Jesus, I'm the one that you're persecuting. And he, he was blinded for three, for three days, and, and uh, tradition has it, and also we, state, we find in Galatians that he was out in the desert, in the wilderness, for three years. And in those three years, Jesus Christ taught him everything he needed to know. As a matter of fact, kind of when we went through this in Galatians uh, and, and also in uh, Philippians, when we, we go through the book, we went back into the book of Acts, and Paul is sharing with us his testimony on what took place. And very, you know, it's very subtle, but you can see it. Paul went back to Jerusalem to preach the gospel message. And James and Peter and uh, those, the disciples that walked with Jesus Christ, they stood there and go, that's on point. 
That's exactly what Jesus taught us. And everything that G- Paul was preaching was the same thing Peter was preaching, the same thing James was preaching, the same thing that the rest of the church in Jerusalem, the apostles were preaching. So Paul was taught firsthand from Jesus Christ in this seminary experience, in this desert experience. And, and he says here, we declare to you by a word from the Lord. He told me this. Just like he told uh, when, when he said in Acts, he says, you, you know what our Lord said, it's better to give than it is to receive. And we look through the scriptures, Jesus never said that. How, how can he say that? And it's even written in red in my Bible. Jesus never really said, you know, it's not in scripture, but it was, again, a teaching that Paul had received. And then he goes on to say, uh, in verse five, uh, I'm sorry, continue on there. He says that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. Uh, I missed something there. I did this last week as well. Do you remember that? I <laughs> Verse, let me start off with verse 14 again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, though, though through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Once again, for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Lord, I pray that these words can encourage your church those that you have called, those that you have predestined, those that you have saved and redeemed, those that are willing to follow your word as best as we can. And Lord, sometimes death is frightening. It is. Because we don't know. We don't have any firsthand experience, and therefore we trust in your word as to what it says. And I know there are many people like the Thessalonians that are concerned and somewhat uninformed of what may happen. Or we've picked up ideas or thoughts or other philosophies of religions that say various things. But God, your word is true, and so we believe you above and beyond anything and anyone else. So Father, teach us through these words this morning. As you encourage us, you give us that hope that only comes from you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The rapture, first of all, let me, let me back up a little bit. Falling asleep in Christ, dying, has all kinds of various, all, all kinds of ideas and thoughts and religions. There are some religions that, that believe that when you die, you reincarnate back into something else. And I've heard that even expressed in some Christian circles as well as, you know, that there's this idea that we all kind of die and, and, and then something, other, something else happens to you. There are some thoughts that uh, believe that when you die, you, you, oh, your spirit all of a sudden just goes into this atmosphere where God is at, and they're all there, and that's where God separates them. And, and uh, you know, there's this understanding of some kind of soul sleep as well, that when you die, your soul goes to sleep as well, and the Bible is foreign on soul sleep as well. I mean, you, you can think of all these various types of things. Some people just believe that you die, and there's nothing else. Talk about it being hopeless. You live, and that's it. There's nothing else. I would rather, if I guess, if I didn't believe in God, I would rather believe that instead of the wrath of God, eternal punishment and all damnation. Well, of course I would. But that doesn't make it true. That just makes it denial. And so when Paul is talking to the people in Thessalonica, he, he's not really sharing with them the theology or the doctrine of the rapture. 
you know, he's, he's encouraging them that this is what's going to happen. His whole purpose of this portion of the scripture is to encourage them about those that have fallen asleep. Now, we get our teaching from the rapture from this portion of scripture and others, as I stated earlier. So let's just go on to your outlines, first of all, and let's look at this uh, step by step on how we are going to be all caught up with Jesus. Okay, in verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. That's your first fill in. Jesus will descend from heaven. Okay, he will descend from heaven. Himself, he, not an angel, not the angels. And it's interesting because in Mark chapter 13, at the end of time, Jesus sends his angels to bring in the elect. It's his angels that sound out the trumpet call. And it's not the, it's not the seventh trumpet in, in the book of Revelation. Some people kind of equate the last trumpet that we'll see in 1 Corinthians 15 in just a bit. They equate 15, uh, verse 50, I believe is what we're going to jump into, that that last trumpet is the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is God is dispensing his wrath upon the world after the church is raptured. That, that there is, there are four, there are seven seals, and every time there's a seal open, something happens. Something happens to the world. Something cataclysmic happens. Earthquakes. There's famines. There's diseases. There's wars. Rumors of wars. And if you look at the the four horsemen of the apocalypse, or the four seals in the book of Revelation, it matches with Jesus's Olivet discourse in Matthew 24. Matthew 24 will tell you first and foremost, and we've gone over this over and over again. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth as far as the end time is concerned, do not be deceived. Okay, because there's all kinds of theories out there and all kinds of ideas out there. And then he goes and starts unleashing these things that happen. And then he says a little bit later, you know, that I don't want you to be deceived. There's going to be a lot of antichrists. And they're going to be able to deceive those that are elect, even the elect, if it was possible. That's how deceptive this religion is within the church. He's not talking about these false religions. He's talking about within the church on what it takes to get to heaven, on what it means to be saved, on how to be redeemed. And he's not talking about, you know, how to live, but also how to live. And Jesus says, because this is going to happen. But it's Jesus Christ himself that he descends from heaven, nowhere else but from heaven, from up on, up on high, the right hand of the Father. The next thing, well, first of all, for the Lord himself will descend. In Acts 1.11, remember when Jesus ascended into heaven, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. How did Jesus go? He went up on a cloud. What, is, what does the Bible teach us? That he himself will descend from heaven. And he will descend in such a way that, in such a way that he went. For we declare in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry come out, the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians here in just a bit, that he'll come down on the cloud. He went up on a cloud, he's going to come down on the cloud. As a matter of fact, when he comes down, he's not going to put his foot on this earth. In the book of Revelation, he sets, actually in the book of Ezekiel, he sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. And there's a big earthquake. And he comes and he descends onto this, onto this planet. And when he comes, those that he had taken with him, those that have died in Christ first, those that have been raptured, the martyred saints, are all going to come down with him. But here it's Jesus Christ himself. And in verse 14, excuse me, in, chapter, in John 14, verses 1 through 3, one of the, one of the best, uh, I guess, a very famous passage that we use for funerals and, and some people use it for comfort. And Jesus says in chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. 
Remember, Jesus is talking to them before he goes and, and he's executed. And he's telling them, let, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, uh, believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What Jesus Christ is explaining here and he's showing us, he's going to come, meet us in the middle of the earth, Paul says, and he's going to take us with him. At the end time, all the signs that are pointing to the end, at the end time, Jesus Christ returns to the planet, sets foot on a mountain and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. And then that's where we will be with him on this planet. But until then, Jesus is going to take us with him to heaven. We'll be in the presence of God. We'll be in the presence of, of the Father. We are his bride. If you know, it, one of the things that might make a little bit of sense to, to you is if you understand how a Jewish wedding works. In a Jewish wedding, a Jewish wedding could take a, uh, you know, a day or two or three, even a week or so. Sometimes as long as 10 days, depending on how much money you had. How, much, how big of a party you want to throw. It, it's an elaborate wedding. And the groom comes and receives his bride, takes her from the house and brings him, brings her to his father's house and presents the bride. And there is a celebration and she's sitting up there and she's all dressed in white and, and there's feasting and there's fellowship. There's all kinds of dancing and music and, and it lasts for a very long time. It could be a day, it could be two days. Uh, can you imagine a, a wedding that lasts uh, the whole day? Some people kind of do that, uh, you know, uh, two days a week. It's amazing. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ is going to do for us. And so he presents himself, uh, he presents his bride to the father and the family. And then after the, the vows are exchanged and everything is done, then there comes the consummation is when Jesus Christ returns and he establishes his kingdom. The husband or the groom and the bride establish their household. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's coming for his elect. He's taking them to his father's house that have all these rooms. And Jesus said, you know, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you this. Right? And I'm telling you this because this is what's going to happen. Some people think that this is the end time when Jesus Christ comes to prepare a place for us. No, we're going to be here on this planet. Again, Revelation. We'll have to get into that sometime soon. And so Jesus will descend from him. He, he will, not an angel, but himself. Number two, Jesus will declare his arrival with a cry of command. This is a military term. And I, I don't know what he's going to command. I don't know what he's going to say. I don't know how he's going to do this. I don't have the, the Greek to it, and I don't have the understanding of how, what, what these words are going to say. Paul just says, again, teaching on being diligent and faithful and understanding that your loved ones are safe, they're asleep, they're in, their souls are in heaven, they're not experiencing any pain, they, they're just waiting for their new bodies. And in this, this cry, this command, Jesus calls out. And in John chapter 11, if you remember the death of Lazarus, and, and they told Jesus, Lazarus is sick, you need to come see him, please. And, and he tarries for three days, and finally after the third day, they said, you know, it's too late. Lord, he's been in the tomb for three days and he stinketh by now. I mean, don't, even, don't even attempt to open up the, the tomb. And, and, but, but what does he do? He has them open up the tomb and he cries out. And he cries out his name and he says, Lazarus, come out. Now, you've heard me before and you've probably heard this as well, that Jesus had to identify Lazarus. Because if he would have just said, come out, they would have all come out. 
That's how powerful his word is. Now, this is interesting because Lazarus is identified as one of his elect, a good friend, a, a, his, his partner, his friend. He loved Lazarus. He cried when he lost, when Lazarus was asleep. He mourned him at that moment. And people looked. And again, the shortest verse in scripture, he wept. Jesus wept. And people around him said, see how much he loved him? I mean, it wasn't just a tear, mind you. It wasn't just a, it wasn't just a little, it wasn't. It was a, a deep down cry that comes out when somebody mourns another person. It was obvious and it was evident that Jesus loved this man. It wasn't just one of those, man, I feel bad for the guy. And they recognized, and so Jesus calls him out, Lazarus, come out, and he came out. You see, it's interesting how Jesus identifies him as one of the elect. And in the rapture, there are two groups of people. First of all, there's those that are dead in Christ, and the second group is those that are still left behind. And we'll touch on that here in just a little bit. You see, in, in Joel chapter 2, we understand that God himself is going to cry out. He's going to, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp, in exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Every time that the Old Testament prophets talked about the day of the Lord, they talked about the end times. We're looking at the end times unfold right before our eyes. We're watching this lawlessness that we'll get into in in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 2, we'll see about the lawlessness that's happening within the world. We know that all these diseases and pestilences of this hatred toward God and the church, we're, we're starting to see a lot of these things happen already. And so, so what has to happen is, number one, the first thing that's going to happen is the rapture. But, you know, let me just share this with you right now. If, according to the way I understand Scripture, the way I understand the way the Bible is written, and, and how they... Uh, describe the end time. Uh, I come from the camp, when there's three camps, and I mentioned this last week, I come from the camp, what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. And for short, it's called the pre-trib. There's a mid-trib and there's a post-trib. The rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation, or the rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation. The last one just does not make any sense, but there's people that really believe that. The middle one, somewhat, you know, they can get some. But but I I come from the the camp that we will not experience God's wrath. He's going to save us from that hour. So pre-tribulation rapture means that the tribulation is going to happen as soon as the rapture takes place. There is, there are many signs that are pointing to the end. And when the tra- rapture takes place, well, if it takes place in the middle, the middle or the first, at the beginning, the middle or the end, it's, the, the tribulation is seven years. But let's just say for argument's sake, it's three and a half years. It's in the middle. Okay, let's just, you know, again, that means that if it were to happen right now, the end will come in three and a half years. But if everything is already pointing to the end, beloved, don't you think we should, should have happened already three years ago? I mean, look how much time we really have. Personally, once again, I, I read it and I see it as being done before the tribulation starts. Jesus Christ will return and take his church with him and then starts the seven-year tribulation. Now, let me, let me say that again. If the tribulation ends in seven years and everything is pointing to the end and everything seems to be happening to, that looks like the end, we don't have much time if it happens seven years later. Do you get what I'm saying? 
If it happens seven years later, then we're kind of a... And there is no sign for the rapture. The rapture is a sign. It's the big sign that says, okay, seven years, let's go. It's going to happen at this point. How are they going to explain that? I mean, there's all kinds of AI technology that's happening. There's all kinds of uh, illusions that take... There's all kinds of things and ways to be able to explain it today. But everything is just happening. One of the biggest signs to, to see that the world was coming to that end was for, for 1,900 years, the Bi- people were always arguing against the Bible. They said, it, it can't be true. How are all these nations going to rise up against Jerusalem? Jerusalem doesn't even have a nation. They're not even there. They have no uh, identity. They have no nation. How is anybody going to invade a, a nationless, a peopleless nation? It belongs to the Turks and it belongs to, the, to everybody else. Until 1948 happened. Oh, okay. So 1948 happened, Israel became a nation. And Israel now is one of the greatest nations in the nation and, and, and it has, has a bunch of help. Well, that help is dwindling. The only people that really were backing up Israel was the United States. Another question that would arise quite a bit, and again, we've touched on this, is how, how is the Antichrist in this system going to know what I buy and sell? Well, those of you guys with debit cards, just in the last few years, you recognize, you know, they, they know what you're buying. They can turn off your cards anytime they want. Now that we have this global financial system and everything is going paperless, moneyless, everything's going to be electronic. And it's, I mean, it's, it's very simple. And now we're building this European Union, this... I mean, there, there are a lot of things that have to be put in place, and a lot of those things are already in place. Beloved. A lot of those things are taking... 50 years ago, people would have said, how are they going to know? How will they ever know that we're there, what I buy or what I sell? Well, they're going to take away your cash for one, and they have to track everything that you do. And so all these things are pointing to the end. Every time in the Old Testament, when they said that the day of the Lord, they're talking about the end time, the Lord utters his voice like he's going to utter his voice on the day that he comes. He's just going to cry it out. Number three, Jesus will deploy his archangel. Now, we don't know who this archangel is. The book of Jude, verse 9, says that the, Michael, the archangel, was, I guess, struggling or, or wrestling with Satan over Moses' body. Jude is alluding to this struggle that took place, and uh, the Satan wanted to take his uh, body somewhere else, and the archangel came in, Michael came in, and he struggled with him. And so some people believe that this is possibly Michael, the archangel, that's going to, uh, with the voice of an angel. Not only is God going to say, come out, get together, but the angel is going to come as well. We don't know if it's the actual same archangel. We don't know how many archangels God has. But it's going to be in both together with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel. That's the third step that takes place. In Mark 13, it says, and, they, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds and great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the portion where a lot of people know that this is the end time. Some people believe that this archangel is going to be at the end time when they go out and gather. No, it's just going to be one angel. And it's not just an angel. It's a very important angel. It's an archangel. Let's look at the back of the outline very quickly. Jesus will demonstrate his power. Jesus will demonstrate his power. And with the sound of the trumpet of God. Again, 
the trumpet. End time. End time trumpet, seven trumpets. It's the angels that are blowing these trumpets. Then the angel came, blew the first trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet. And they blow these trumpets in such a manner that dispenses whatever it is that God is pouring out on the world, His wrath. And so there are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, and then there are seven bowls. And every one of these are very significant. And again, without getting too, into too much detail about the book of Revelation. By the way, the book of Revelation is a very, should be a very simple book to read. You shouldn't be afraid of it. It, it's, it, is, it is symbolic. And it's pretty symbolic if you understand what the symbolism means. If you understand how the temple works as well. The lampstands and, and, the, stand, and the stars and all those things you know and, and they talk about these these animals you know the lion the the eagle the bear and the claw you know all these things the beast and and all of that is symbolic and it made sense to the people in that day but it was in code to keep it away from everybody else so that they wouldn't figure out what was going on <clears throat> and it's kind of like the code that you and i would probably use if we're talking about well you know if i were to if i were to say to you uh the bears the eagles uh the rams and the colts what am i talking about Football, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's very simple. You, oh yeah, you know, you you even know what state they play, what city. You might even know the quarterbacks, you know, some of the players, and, and it was just as symbolic as that. When Paul, you excuse me, when John used numbers in the Book of Revelation, it, they're just like numbers that we use that bring back a memory. If I were to say nine eleven, what would that mean to you? Nine eleven, the, the terrorist attack, the towers, right? Nine eleven. Somebody once said. 911, call emergency. Well, okay. Nine. It, has a sim- it has a meaning to you. As a matter of fact, the moment I said 911, and some of you said terrorist attack, some of you were right away jettisoned back, right back to that time, that day. You, you, you knew where you were at, where you were sitting, when you heard, when you watched, when you saw the feeling. Sometimes the emotions come up. And that's how powerful these memories are and these, and, and these illusions and, that Paul is alluding to and, and sharing with the people. Excuse me, John. I keep saying Paul. John is sharing with the church, saying, look, these, these are the things. That's why they know who this 666 person is. That's why they know with the number of men and the number of the beast. They're all symbolic, but they know what they're talking about. Again, going back in the book of Revelation, understanding the symbolism. And most of, most of the symbolism is already described in the book of Revelation. But... The man without the Spirit cannot understand the things that come from the Spirit of God, for he is spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You need discernment from the Spirit to show you these things. But Jesus will demonstrate his power with the trumpet sound of God. And so if it's not the angel's trumpet, it's God's trumpet. I mean, if it's God's trumpet, then it can't be the angel's trumpet. This is the trumpet of God. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Just back a few pages. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles that are in the pews, that would be page 961. 961. Actually, nope, I need, I need you to go to 962. Because that's where it starts, in verse 50. Mystery and victory. It says, it says here, I tell you this, brother. Well, by the way, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is one of my favorite chapters. Okay, just so you know. Chapter 15, and I've, and I've always said this, you only have, only have 10 minutes to, to say, you only got 15 minutes to speak. And I always say, you know, if these were the last 15 minutes of my life, and I would lose all my breath and fall dead as soon as I, that 15 minutes was up, this is what I want to share with you. And you go to chapter 15 and verse, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance. 
Well, first, first of all, I would say, you know, I've already wasted a minute by introducing myself and telling you what I'm going to preach on. So now I only got 14 minutes. But as I, pre- I, I shared with you, I, I proclaimed to you, I, I brought to you, I delivered to you as a first, first, first importance, the very first thing, the most important thing on Paul's heart, Paul's mind, what I also received from Receive that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If I had 15 minutes, that's all I had. I'm going to share the gospel message with you. You are a sinner. That's what the scriptures teach. I'll go to the Old Testament. That's all they had. In the new, they, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the Romans Road. They didn't have the four spiritual laws. They didn't have the evangelism explosion. They didn't have grace. They didn't have any of these types of programs and tracks. All they had was the Old Testament. The gospel of God is in the Old Testament. And I would proclaim that if I only have 15 minutes to, and I'll never see you again, this is what you need to know, which is of first importance. And I love the book of 1 Corinthians because Paul is talking about the end time. And then my favorite verse of all is the last verse, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Whatever you do for the Lord is not in vain. You might think that there is no fruit. You might think that you just tick somebody off. You might think that there is no response Jesus says, hey, don't worry about the results. You just do the work. It's not in vain. So in between first importance and whatever you do is not in vain is this whole, Paul just just goes and talks about the, the resurrection of the dead. And he talks about the resurrection of the body and then how all these things come to place in, in these 58 verses. This is, this is his, what, what he's sharing. And in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot get into the kingdom of God with this body. That's why it's got to be stripped away. That's what you do when you sleep. I pray that most of you don't sleep in your clothes, your work clothes. But some of you, I understand, go to work in your pajamas. So I don't know. Uh, I I pray that when you go to bed, you you take off those old, rugged, smelly clothes. Because that's exactly what you're going to do when you go to sleep in Christ. That old body is just going to be taken away, praise God. Amen. Somebody say amen. It's going to be just taken away. You're going to go to sleep. Your soul, your soul is going to be with Christ. You're going to be with face to face with God in your spirit. And that body, you cannot get into heaven with that stinking body. Okay? Try as you may, you won't be able to do it. I tell, you, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, he says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You need a new body. You need a new life. You need a new soul. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And, and what Paul is saying, you know, those things that, you know, our body is going to perish. But our soul, our spirit is imperishable. It's not going to perish. You can't do that. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. It's got to go away. Behold, I tell you a mystery. See, and even Paul at this time, he didn't quite understand it. He didn't quite flesh it out yet until he's working through this. Jesus is We didn't have this full understanding of how this is going to take place, how Jesus Christ is going to rapture the church, how our body is going to be changed. But Paul is fleshing this out. This is a mystery. He says, we shall not all sleep. But we shall all be changed. We have to be changed. This body has got to go. Your soul has got to be met up with a new body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
he says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on an imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your, excuse me, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death shouldn't hurt. It does, unfortunately. That's kind of what I'm afraid of, is the pain that we go through to get there. The decaying body as it, as it, goes through the stages of finally and it's I've seen it and, and I've, it's not it's not a pretty picture but when you think about it it's got to go you know it should it should incur Paul says a little later uh, he says that these bodies these jars of clay they're wasting away but our spirit inside is is growing even more and more so yes this is wasting away yes I can't move my arms my legs yes I'm laying here yes I'm in pain but my spirit is longing even more or so to be in the presence of God. I can't wait till that time happens. And in a twinkling of an eye, in an instant, boom, you're going to be changed. You're going to be transformed. The dead first and then us. A little, little uh, later, he, starts, he talks about, actually a little bit earlier, he talks about how a seed cannot be, uh, the seed that is planted, first of all, is not the same thing that is grown. And what I like to use is a, a tulip. I don't know if you've ever seen a bulb of a tulip. But a tulip bulb is old and wrinkly and ugly. And then you, you pull this out and show, that this, is, this is this. And here's the tulip in a pot. Beautiful. You know, just the array, the green, the purples, or the yellows, whatever it is. Beautiful colors. But this, you don't plant and get this. I mean, this you don't plant, you plant this. See, Christians aren't buried. I'm sorry. Yes, Christians aren't buried. They're planted. You're planted and you're waiting for your new body. And when your new body arrives, it'll be caught up with Jesus Christ at this time, the twinkling of an eye. As Paul was saying, let's go back to where we were at a little while ago. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, as I just said, at the last trumpet. What is this last trumpet then? If it's not the trumpet of the revelation, if it's not the trumpet of the seven trumpets, what is this trumpet? Now, I mentioned earlier <clears throat> that, the, um, that the trumpet uh, was... was uh, it, it was, it's a call. I, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mention it, but I wanted to mention that it's a call. Look at this verse here in Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, if you know anything about Exodus chapter 19 or you know what's going on here, this is just a few months after coming out of Egypt. Here's this nation. Here's these people. Estimations are probably, you know, there was about almost 700, 800,000 men that they counted. They took a census, and there was the census of all these men that were counted. As a matter of fact, I have the exact number here because I just, I was just enthralled. At, wow, how many people were there? I don't have it here on this page. I mean, you know, at least from 20 years old on up to fighting age. So somewhere around maybe 40, 60. And this is just the fighting men, close to 700,000 men. That was it. Not counting the children, not counting the Levites. These are just of the tribes that they had. And they also had, uh, of course, spouses, older people. 
So some people estimate there had to be at least a, a million and a half, two million people. I mean, you know, if they only had one kid each, two kids each, three million people total in the, that came out of Egypt into the wilderness. How do you communicate with a million people? How do you, I can't even communicate with 10 people. I send out a text and people, what? What did you mean? You know, how do you do that? Well, the way God did it is he sounded a blast of the trumpet. God's trumpet is going to blast out and assemble his people. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. I'm sorry, Numbers chapter 10. Numbers is in the beginning of the Bible. It's the uh, fourth book of the Old Testament at the beginning. And this is interesting because the same wording that is used here is the same wording that is used in the New Testament. Of course, it's in, this is in Hebrew, but in the New Testament, it's Greek. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work, and you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. Now, when you go through chapter 10, you'll see that, uh, as a matter of fact, back in, in Exodus, and you'll see that God, what he did is he separated the people, and he separated them in stages, in, in, in stages of three. He put the... Uh, one camp in the north, okay? They put another camp in the south. He put the, the leading camp in the east, and the east was the entrance to the temple, and they, they faced toward the east, and then he put another camp on the west. And so you had these four camps that, uh, that God had. That's how he put them all together. And he says, and here's what I'm going to do. Just the way I, I summoned you, you're going to blast this trumpet. If you blast two trumpets, and, and you know, two blasts, we don't know how the, the blasts were. Uh, history tells us, tradition tells us that these trumpets were probably about 18 inches long. And we just read they're made out of silver. These are not the shafars, the ram's horn. These are different. You've seen pictures of angels with long trumpets. Some are longer than the others. But these were probably about anywhere from 18 to 24 inches. And these are the trumpets that God installed in the camp to get the people together. And when you read this, you'll see that every one of the blasts had a different sound, had a different duration. And uh, they, there was two at one time or maybe just one. If it was just one, then the elders got together. If it was two, everybody was got to attention. And then the last trumpet... The first trumpet would sound, get ready. The second trumpet would sound, and do it again. And, and get all four, four teams together. The last trumpet was always, let's go. And whatever that sound was, it was marching orders. Now, it could be that Paul is alluding to this. I, I think it is. That last trumpet is God. Get, and remember, God has two groups. He has the dead in Christ and those of us that are left behind. We don't have any other information other than that. To say that that's exactly what it is. God used trumpets for all kinds of things. He used them to go to war. He used them to get the people together. He used them to, for feeding. It was like this, this signal that they needed to, for all the people to hear. You know, you got a million people. Up to three million people. How do you get them all together? And boom, he just would blast it out. I, I wish I could go into a little bit more detail with that, but i got to finish this up. Number, uh, Jesus will demonstrate his power through the trumpet of God. And he'll demonstrate that power and the sound of the trumpet because what will happen is the dead in Christ are going to rise first. Number five, Jesus will raise the dead saints first. 
Now, remember, Paul is trying to encourage them. Look, you know, guys, you need to know that you're, you're, those that are asleep, they're asleep. They're not dead. You're going to see them again. And just so you know this, God is going to raise them first. Okay? They're going to be the first ones. Don't worry about that. You'll, you'll be next. And the dead in Christ will rise first. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And the last thing I want to share with you is, is uh, verse 17. Jesus will draw the living together. And this is just a progression. If you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, you know the progression. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. This caught upness. You, you don't want to call it a rapture. Then you know, I've had arguments with people that the word rapture is not in there. You got this flyaway theology. It just doesn't make any sense. You, you don't want to call it the rapture. Don't call it the rapture. You know, because you know, it's, if it, the word is not in there, then it's probably not going to happen. I says, well, you know, did you know that the end times is not in the Bible either? But you believe in the end times. Did you know that the word Bible is not in the Bible? But you believe in the Bible. And the rapture, it's in there. Harpazo. Harpazo means to be caught up, which means, you know, taken away, snatched away with like the Latin. And, and the reason it was translated, Harpazo was translated into Latin is because Latin was one of the first languages that translated the Greek to common man. And Latin was the language that was spoken. And so Harpazo was translated into Rapito, and in Rapito, Raptio, Raptio, and in Raptio was, in English translated, it sounds like rapture, which is what it is. Those that are still living will be drawn together, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. Now, it's interesting how he says, we're going to meet him in the clouds. Because that's the way he went up, in the clouds. And now he's coming back down in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, that's a promise. Not just for the, you know, just for the moment, always. You're getting married, beloved. You are the bride. And uh, you know what? There is a ceremony that's being planned just for your honor. So just like a bride, you need to prepare yourself. Any of you ever planned a wedding? Any here? I know. I know you have. I know you're planning a wedding. <laughs> Any of you ever planned? You know, I mean, it, for some people, it's just like, you just put it together and boom, you know. But there's still some planning. I mean, if you do a right wedding, I mean, it's going to be time and energy and calls and interviews and you name it, you know, taste tests and practices and suits and, you know, I mean, it's, just, it's, it's an ongoing thing. Think of your life as preparing for that wedding. It's a constant preparation. You just can't come to church and say, okay, I'm ready. You just can't. Say one prayer in the morning. Say, okay, Lord. You can't just say, yeah, for your meat, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. You can't just, just say that and say, okay, I'm ready, Lord. Now I lay me down to sleep. You need to prepare. I mean, if, if you know anything about pl planning for a wedding, it takes a lot of time. It takes time to prepare yourself to meet the Lord. It's a sacrifice. It's difficult. It's time-consuming. It's painful. The experiences you go through. It's hard. Some people say, yeah, to sit through an hour for a message, that's, man, that should be, a, everybody should get to heaven who can sit through Pastor Sal's message for an hour. That's grueling, man. Come on. Which, by the way, never mind. It is a discipline 
And if you want to do it right, you want your, you want your planning guide? Here it is. Here's, here's where you get all your information. You just can't come to church one Sunday and say, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to come religiously on Christmas and Easter. You know, I'm just going to come those two days and give my whatever it is to God, and that's it. No. This is our life. We are preparing to meet our beloved Lord. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so Paul concludes 1 Corinthians 15 with my favorite verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And he concludes this portion of scripture in the same manner. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Don't scare each other with these words. Don't try to make it more than what it is. We're talking about those that are inviting Christ, but you know, he's coming back for them. And when he comes back for them, he's going to come back for us as well. And it's going to happen. My question is, are you ready? Are you waiting for his return? We watch and we pray. We will be ready the dawn of that day. Let me ask you to stand. I'd like for us to conclude with that song. If you'd like to sing that with us. That means you got to come up too. I need my drummer to keep us in beat. And of course, we'll have the words up for you as well. Sing to the king.
stand here and say that we are waiting genuinely and, and truly and busy about what it is that you've called us to do. So Father, once again, as we look to that glorious day when the clouds will bring you and you, the world will see you and those that are dead in you first will rise and those that are left behind will be caught up with you. Lord, I pray for conversion, transformation, and evidence of that repentance of the fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen and amen. All right, be up here with you guys if you'd like to come up and have a word of prayer.